Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate people in and around the wonderful world of product management. If that sounds like the sort of thing you want to be a part of, why not come and find me and some of the finest thought leaders and practitioners in the world on onenightinproduct.com, where you can check the back catalogue, sign up to the newsletter, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, or follow the podcast on social media, and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, I take my big bag of cables and microphones on a road trip to the UK's second city of Birmingham for a live interview with a hometown boy about what it's like to work for one of the most recognisable names in UK fitness and a founder who embodies the very product that you're trying to manage. If you want to find out whether that was a waking nightmare or a match made in heaven, stick with us on One Night in Products. But yes, I do obviously have to welcome you all here. Thanks very much for coming. Obviously, love to thank Matt and Janice for being the organizers as well. I've got some notes here, but I'll try not to read them too much. But obviously, really happy to be up in Birmingham to do this event. But I also have to call out, I mean, Matt's already called them out a little bit, but they're the sponsors of the event. Because if I don't mention it enough times, they're going to take my hotel room away and I'm going to have to go and sleep in the station. <laughs> so this event is sponsored. I'm going to read this bit. The event is sponsored by Found by Iris. Is, that, is it Found by Iris or just Iris or either? Both. Okay. So it's been sponsored by both of them who are ironically, therefore, a one-stop solution for next-level recruitment. So if you're tired of outdated hiring, Iris makes talent matching effortless and empowering. They don't just fill jobs. They perfect your recruitment game from inclusive job ads to killer onboarding. Whether you're a brand craving top talent or a professional hunting your dream job, Found by Iris gets you matched, empowered, and ecstatic. So why not check them out and make your next hire or career move the best yet and pop over to foundbyiris.com to find out more. And I will say, I don't know about anyone in this room, but I know a lot of people that are hunting for jobs at the moment. It's obviously a really tricky market as well. So absolutely recommend that you go and speak to them and see what they can do for you because it's tough out there. But tonight, now I normally on these podcasts do a a nice over-the-top intro, which I do basically read out because, you know, I think it's important to get dad jokes in early put everyone at their uh, at ease and make the guests, some of whom are maybe a little bit more suspicious of me than others, to kind of loosen up a little bit. Now, Sagar's obviously not very suspicious of me, but I've got to give him the treatment anyway. So my guest tonight is Sagar Baines. Now, you might listen to me and think, well, oh, great, here's this typical liberal metropolitan elite Londoner to come up and tell us all how to do products and then go back in his carriage to London. But the good news is that Sagar is actually Birmingham born and bred. So this... <laughs> Well, I'm going to get him to tell you all how to do product, and then he's going to go away in his carriage. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. So Sagar, actually, his family have a business just around the corner. And actually, his first job was working as a chief product officer for that firm. And it's a wholesale business, so I'm very sure that if you tap him up and ask him nicely, he will be able to get you a great deal on some party outfits or maybe some beauty products. They seem to have a good range on the website. I had a little look earlier. But then Sagar left Birmingham and went down to London and has had a career that's taken him for a number of different companies, including notably the body coach. So anyone that's been following Joe Wicks and doing the star jumps with him, they'll be well aware of some of the work that Sagar's done to put that app out there. And he's here tonight to talk to us a lot about what it's like to be the CEO of product when the CEO is the product. So this is a really interesting dynamic, which we're going to dig into. And Hopefully, we'll get through it without having to do too much exercise because, you know, it's been a bit of a long day. And get a few burpees. 
But yeah, maybe we can do some burpees if we need to work off some of the tacos. So anyway, let's have a warm welcome for Sega. Right, so first things first, before we get into all that boring product stuff, I do have to ask, and I did say in the intro that you're from Birmingham, born and raised. Correct. But then you left. So why did you leave Birmingham? And We're what, going straight there. Yeah, we, we okay. need to. We need, there, there are people here from <laughs> Birmingham that didn't leave Birmingham, presumably, yep. and you've left Birmingham to go and make your, make your way in the world. Why couldn't you stay? Uh, so I, I am from Birmingham. Mm-hmm. I... I was actually born, technically I was born in Small Heath, which is my claim to being a Peaky Blinder. <laughs> but we quickly moved to Hall Green and then Sully Hall. And I grew up here, went to school here, went to school in Kings Heath. And at the age of 18, I went to medical school, actually. Ah, in Dr. Baines. Dr. Baines, yeah. Um, making my parents really happy for a short amount of time <laughs> um, before getting around two and a half years in, actually getting kicked out of med school because I was too busy basically trying to take over the nightlife of London with my second career, which was trying to be a DJ, which is why I was also helping set up all of this earlier on, by the way. Just to clarify, uh, Sagar <laughs> taped down some of the wires, but uh, you know, I'm, 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 we'll, we'll, give him, we'll give him that. But your family are still up here? Yep. They had and have a wholesale firm. They sell all kinds of cool looking stuff. And they've been doing that for 30 years or more. I don't know exactly how long, but over 30 years. It's, yeah. been, it's been a while. So probably not the most digital of organizations to start with because, you know, things of you know, e-commerce and all of that stuff has kind of come along since they started, right? But you actually had your first job as the CPO of that firm. Yeah. And right. I believe that your job was to basically bring them into the e-commerce era. But in a time, you know, these days you just go on Shopify and set it all up, you know, a few clicks and you'd be done. But this was pre all of that. Definitely. <laughs> so I guess the first question I have to ask, you know, to, to tap into your entrepreneurial spirit is whether that was your idea. So were you the one that said, you know, to the family, it's time to go, it's time to go into e-commerce and I'm going to help you do that. Or was this kind of an idea that they had and you kind of just had to execute on that and make it work for them? I can take credit for that one, actually. Excellent. <laughs> I'd like to hear this. It was me. My, um, I'd just come back from med school, moved back home. To be honest, I mean, it was, I laugh about it now. It was a pretty grim time. I was trying to figure out like what the hell I was doing. And I was temping around Birmingham doing various different jobs. And then my dad said, look, why don't you come and help me out? And I was like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll come and work with you. Quickly, after spending a few weeks there, this would have been like 2008, I think, something around then. I, um, I was like, we should be selling online. Like That's where the trends are going. Yes, we're, we were quite an old school B2B wholesaler. I don't know if you guys know the jewelry quarter, but you've essentially got two sides of jewelry quarter. You've got all the gold and silver like merchants here, all the like the high end stuff, and then on the other side of Great Hampton Street, you've got all the wholesalers selling all the cheap stuff, and that's that's where we are. So we've got like a big warehouse there. <laughs> and when I say selling everything, like it's probably the only e-com store where you can buy some makeup, buy a belt, buy a bong, and buy some Rizzler, <laughs> and just check out. <laughs> With one basket, and I'm so not making that up. the first ever everything store. <laughs> yeah. Amazon have nothing on yeah, you. Yeah, Amazon have nothing, and they still don't sell that stuff to this day, so we are the only everything store. But no, we... I said to my dad, I said, look, we should go online. I'd always been into technology. I'd like dabbled in HTML when I was at school and stuff. And I was like, look, we're going to figure this out. So back then, as you said, there was no Squarespace, there was no Shopify, any of those guys. And what, I think one of our dad's suppliers or something was like, oh, a business we know is using a platform called Actinic. Don't know if anyone's heard of that later became Celadec. 
So we, I was like, okay, that works. You know, I think when you're young and you're kind of like, you don't overthink stuff. I was like, we'll go with that. Set that up. Started taking pictures of the products ourselves. Like ordered a photo booth off eBay for 60 quid and like shined some lights at it, took some photos, stuck the products up um, and really went from there. And actually, true story, the phone rang one day and this lady was on the other end of the phone. And she was like, um, hi, you know, I've just placed an order on your website and um, I just want to make a change. And the member of staff who picked it up didn't have a clue what was going on because I'd just been sort of working in the corner on a, on a computer for two months. They passed the phone to me and I was like, hi, how can I help you? She's like, I've just placed an order. I was like, well, you can't place an order because the website's not live. And she was like, no, I definitely have. And I was like, no, you haven't. <laughs> Argued with this woman and then realized about 10 minutes later, I'd published the website about a week ago. She'd <laughs> <There you laughs> been live. So yeah, that was, um, that was me taking the business into e-commerce. Well, there you go. I mean, that's obviously an inspiration to us all, proper zero to one story as well. But so obviously you've been around that business though, I presume for pretty much your whole life, right? You've been there. And it's kind of been there as you've been growing up. It's like family, the family trade. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, given your description of it, that it probably wasn't the most digital business to start with. And you've obviously had to kind of, as you said, almost be, you've been, you had to be quite scrappy. You've had yeah. to kind of work it all out. You've kind of, well, as you just memorably described, it was, <laughs> yeah, you were publishing stuff and forgetting that you'd published it. So it was a proper entrepreneurial journey, like a zero to one style, you know, do things that don't scale move fast and break things, all of that stuff. Do you think that that has had a big impact on the rest of your product career? Like the fact that you've not just, come, you know, for example, gone out, done a little bit of work, and then kind of just gone into a bunch of companies using frameworks and sort of different approaches and kind of been a traditional product manager. You've been a kind of a scrappy entrepreneur yourself. Like, has that informed the rest of your career? Or did you have to kind of learn some of the other stuff afterwards? No, I think it's definitely had an impact massive actually when when i think about it like if you think about the kind of qualities of being an entrepreneur and getting something off the ground like how you described it being scrappy like the kind of core behaviors and values of that are so similar to product management it doesn't surprise me actually like i've never really thought about it i guess but that i've ended up in this career path because you like you're getting something off the ground you're you have to have an extreme bias for action so just don't overthink it try it go move quickly you have to be you have to be incredibly curious and not it's not just curiosity it's like just kind of diving and like you have to be fearless and dive into the unknown like never built an e-commerce site we'll figure it out never done product photography uh, let's just like google it and go from there so i think those values and those behaviors have have really stuck with me both at and actually to be honest not even just at the kind of some you know in the last 5 6 years i've been in early stage startups like it definitely applies there without a doubt but it also applies even when I was at my corporate career at Deloitte, like the same behaviors still apply in a big organization like that. I'd argue that's why I got into Deloitte Digital and like found my way into e-commerce there as well, because I was kind of never afraid to ask or never afraid to be like, well, I can do that. And I remember pitching to a partner at Deloitte once. Bear in mind, these guys were building like johnlewis.com. And I was there like, oh, I built my dad's website. <laughs> can, you, <laughs> can you let me into Deloitte Digital, please? And they were like, and then actually it paid off in the end. I got in there. So yeah, I think those those values definitely translate. Well, there you go. Well, let's talk a little bit about Deloitte then, because you described before this, like when we did the kind of the intro, you said that you did a stint at Deloitte, as you just described, where you said that you thought you were doing product, but you later realized that you weren't. Now, obviously, this does have the good product manager, bad product manager thing going on, or the quote unquote proper product manager cliche, like, I don't know, 
what you were expecting that you should have been doing. But what do you mean by thinking that you, I mean, Deloitte, obviously, as you say, building big stuff, big corporate. But what do you mean by the fact that you thought you were doing product, but realized you weren't? Did I write that on my LinkedIn? I can't remember if you wrote it on your LinkedIn <laughs> or if you put it in the questionnaire that I sent you, but you, you definitely wrote it. What did I mean? You, you, okay. probably, you probably wrote it about a week before and forgot that you wrote it. I think so. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what I mean by that. I So in proper product management. Yes, Marty Kagan inspired product management. Exactly. I think the biggest thing for me is you have to understand why you're doing something and you have to have the context. Particularly when you kick something off and then that needs to be you need to constantly be reminding yourself, oh, hang on, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? What are we trying to achieve? All right? That's like the fundamental pillar, I would say. And something in later places in my career, like we always go back to that question, what is the problem we're trying to solve? When I worked in consulting, we did some amazing work, don't get me wrong, some of my fondest years of my career. But that bit for me was always missing. And understandably, right? we were a delivery outfit. We were there to, clients giving us a brief, and bear in mind, you know, I was, I was probably like, what, I don't know, a junior product manager or kind of early in my career then. And you get told, like, here's what we're building. We're doing a digital transformation for Dyson. And we're going to build this over 10 sprints over the next 12 months or whatever it is. Off you go. Don't get me wrong. There were loads of elements of product management in there, like collaboration with engineers, collaboration with multiple stakeholders, influencing stakeholders, prioritizing a backlog. But but why we were doing something, the evidence behind why we were doing something, the commercial implications of why we were doing something, any analytics around it, like nothing. Like we didn't have that. So I, I learned loads, definitely, on the, on the delivery side, but it wasn't the whole picture. That's what I meant by that. Now, I'm sure there'll be some people either out there or listening to this uh, like, well, that sounds exactly like my proper product job. So I guess, did you have an opportunity whilst you were there because I've spoken to a lot of people that, that work for that type of company, like, and you know, your agency side as well, right, Matt? So, like, there are lots of product agencies out there. And I'm assuming, maybe naively, but maybe not based on what you just said, that you don't really ever get to really challenge, like, because they're paying you to do a thing. So, like, but do you ever get to do anything around the edges where you can start to inject proper product thinking, in quotes, to what they're doing? Or are you always defaulting to a kind of delivery mindset and just getting done whatever they say? No, I think we certainly did over time. And I should caveat as well, we were much more on the kind of SI, on a scale like systems integrator side of things, versus say like a, you know, an, a 360 kind of product agency, whom I've worked with in later stages, and they're much more involved in discovery. But certainly in the early years, it was very much just like delivery. And then I think as the as the business matured and we brought in more people on the UX side and, and visual designers and the, I guess the whole narrative around product management began to grow because we didn't even call it product management back then. What I did start, you call it? I was a business analyst back in the day. Um, Classic. Business analyst, functional lead, I think was what we called, proxy product owner and then product manager. That's pretty much how the titles went. So that, yeah, it came over time, but still you were always one, if not two steps removed from why are we doing something? And that ultimately led to me leaving. Well, you went searching for the halcyon product fields of, of Joe Wicks and all of the other companies out there that you work for. But let's fast forward again and talk about your gig at The Body Coach, because I'm sure that there are many people here who've heard of The Body Coach. They've all probably heard of Joe Wicks. For the people online who haven't heard of him, he's a very big name in UK fitness. I'm not sure who the US or international equivalents are. Maybe you know, maybe you've got some insight. If anyone here knows, if there's like a Joe Wicks anywhere else in the world, who? Richard Simmons. Richard Simmons. Okay. 
I mean, I don't know who that is, but you no, know, I don't. probably not. Adrian Webb Yoga. So anyway, big name in the UK fitness space, big personality all over YouTube. He's been all over the TV. He's been interviewed by lots of people. Been doing this fitness thing for quite some time and got very popular, I understand, over the pandemic as well, because obviously everyone was looking to try and do anything they could to just stop collapsing into a ball of mush because they weren't allowed to do anything anymore or go out. And fitness was their only escape. But I do have to ask, I mean, you know, you look a fit fellow. Like, were you a <laughs> were you a fan or did you know much about Joe Wicks's stuff before? Like, or, so you nodded, so you did. So, like, yeah. you you were you like a, a Joe Wicks fan, and this was your dream job? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say I was a big fanboy or anything like that, but my <laughs> I, I followed him on Instagram and I liked his oh, content. There you go. And we were doing his workouts in the start of the pandemic, and I remember when he launched an app. When would this? This would have been late 2020, I think the app was first launched. I was speaking to my wife and I was like, he must have a product team or someone must be doing something like, <laughs> like overseeing that delivery. And I kid you not, like a week later, I saw the job pop up on LinkedIn for the head of product role there. So what we're saying is that he didn't have a product team <laughs> to do any of that stuff. Or did he have a previous product team? Because there's this whole thing that I've read about and spoken about before, this idea of no one wants to be anyone's first product manager. You always want to be mm. someone's second first product manager because the first one's like the, the sacrificial lamb that kind of goes in and they kind of ruin because they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and then they get a second one and it's all a bit better than it w would have been if you're the first one. So were you literally Joe Wicks's first ever product hire? In-house, yes. The agency that they used to build the product had a, a fantastic product team as well. But I guess technically they were an agency that weren't in-house. So they had all the same problems that you had at Deloitte. Yeah. Effectively, what we're saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then as you said then, you weren't in there kind of zero to oneing the app. Like there was an app. Was it fully established and ready and working and had subscribers or like how, how far along its journey was it when you turned up? Because you've got experience taking sort of zero to one, right? Yeah. Uh, effectively a non-digital business, which is presumably what Joe Wicks is talking. I mean, it was digital mm -hmm. in the sense that he was putting out of content over YouTube and videos and stuff, but like it wasn't a digital platform before the app, right? No, not a fully fledged app or anything like that. But he did have a PDF based product, which you could argue is a kind of digital product, I guess, an incredibly successful product. And the core proposition of the app was based on that. So in terms of like, was it zero to one? Yes. But did we have a, or did the agency and them at the time have a very strong understanding of what a successful product in this space looked like? They absolutely did. And they modeled it. So you could, you know, we had product market fit, I guess is, is the short version. But the, in answer to your first part of the question, I guess, was it all ready to go? Yes and no. I'd say like there was an app there, had an incredibly successful launch. And I think by and large, the agency did an amazing job getting that live. I think obviously once you get into the business and you start to take a deeper look around and you realize that from an operational side, there are obviously gaps and you know we, we were lacking data and we're lacking certain tooling on our marketing tech side of things. And very quickly, we began to address those things over time. Now, there's another cliche that you get around, which is that basically when you have, for example, like a non-tech, non-product type founder that maybe, you know, they, maybe they do get like an external team in to do it, or maybe they just get their tech friend in to come and help. Like there's loads of startups that start that way, but there's this kind of idea that they kind of just throw it all together, loads of tech there up front, you know, move fast and break things again. Like it's just all, it's, it's like almost needs to be rebuilt from the beginning all over again. But it sounds like from what you're saying that it was actually pretty, pretty decent. It just needed to be taken on. Is that right? 100%. Yeah. So I've, actually, I've been in both those camps. So I built an app with my best friend who still runs that business to the day in the NHS. And that was the latter. 
we built the first one, completely cocked it up, built it again. He's probably on his like fourth build now or something like that. But Joe and I should say Nicky as well, who is the CEO of the business and Joe's brother, they were very intentional in building it right from the outset. You know, as right as you can be, I guess, for your first time, because you're never going to get everything right. And the agency obviously played an important role in that and guiding them to the right choices. So yeah, like it wasn't a scrappy bootstrapped thing. But this goes back to creator-led businesses, right? When you have an audience of pushing 10 million across all channels, you can't put out a shit product. Like it needs to be robust. It needs to be able to handle that volume of users and that kind of thing. This reminds me of what we were talking about, Matt, before when we were walking over about, for example, whether sort of move fast and break things is kind of dead now to some extent because the expectations of consumers is so much higher. Like back in the day when Facebook was saying that sort of thing, they had basically, well, they had minimal competition and people's expectations were, were a lot lower. Whereas now, like, and we saw this with threads, like everyone's like really excited that Instagram bring out threads and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, that's not very good. Like, it's missing all these features and like, well, why doesn't it do that yet? And well, where's this list? And that, and like you start getting this idea that, well, maybe there is a minimum bar. I mean, again, like, with threads, with Instagram, they had like millions of users the same, I guess, or more in, in Instagram's case. But this idea that there's almost like a minimum bar for a product these days, otherwise it's just going to get laughed out of the room. But uh, I don't know if you felt that pressure to to make it really good because you had this pre-baked audience rather than uh, almost no. like you know, trying to find one. Definitely. I, I mean, I don't agree that move move fast and break things. Move fast and break things is is over. Yeah. Like, I think if you haven't got, it all comes down to brand risk. Like if you've got a really strong established brand, people know you for a premium quality product. Then I agree with you. Like the bar is high, and you can't afford to risk anything. So you know, threads they kind of should have known better. Really, um, <laughs> I mean, I didn't think they did a terrible job, but I think there were clearly like there were things missing that they just had to. They should have had in place, arguably. Similarly for Joe, like I think, you know, at his level of reach and audience, they couldn't put out a scrappy product. I mean, even putting out Android a year later, like the number of people who complained about that. Um, <laughs> I would have complained about that. <laughs> people, come we on, actually... Everyone who's using Android, put their hands up. See, come on, it's a little, roughly 50-50. <laughs> we, um, people we, are already too fit, that's the problem. Yeah. Really? Chiseled. chiseled. <laughs> I need to get an Android phone. <laughs> but if, you're, if you haven't got that audience and you haven't got that risk, then I would say definitely move fast and break things. Funny story, actually, just about the Android thing. We released Android one year later to the day after iOS, so like 2021. And people were actually commenting saying, oh, they must have had an exclusivity deal with, with Apple, like holding them out for a year. It's like, well, no. Oh, there it's you actually... go. It's like a, <laughs> it makes you, it almost like, makes you feel like a premium thing yeah. rather than that you were just too lazy to do it. Too busy. Too busy to do it. But I want to talk a little bit then about some of the things that you did then when you started. So you've turned up, you've joined a company with a really well-known brand. So he wasn't the CEO, though, you say. He's, he's... No, uh, his brother Nicky is the CEO. Okay, so what, what's Joe Wicks' official role? Is he just like... I don't just... know what his title is, actually. He just is the body coach. He, yeah, I okay. guess he, he is, yeah. He embodies the essence of the body coach. He's the essence that spreads amongst the entire company. So you turned up, you've got the app. You've got to get it out there and you're taking over and you've got to kind of improve it and, and keep moving. Like you say, there's like no data, no analytics, maybe lacking evidence base for certain things. And I'm assuming a lot of it's been done kind of at the behest of Joe and the team because they kind of knew what they wanted. And now you've come in and you want to put in some, I guess, vigor around the whole thing and start to make some good product moves. So when you walk into that situation, like what's your first step or your first small collection of steps? Like what sorts of things do you concentrate on to? kind of start that ship? That's a good question. This was 
I think you know, this was hard and I think I struggled with this, if I'm honest. I think what I quickly realized was that there was a an obvious desire to listen to customers, build things that customers are asking for, right? Like, we want to see this. We want to see this content. We, you know, why can't I do this with the planner? And why can't I filter my recipes and all this stuff? Requests that make complete sense. And you could argue some of them were just foundational table stake stuff that we should have just had, but they never made the launch build standard. But there were also what I called kind of big foundational chunks that were missing, like analytics. Like, we're not going to get very far without a decent analytics stack. We're not going to get really far without a decent push notifications emails stack in place. So there was just a number of conversations, I guess, ultimately to educate both the founders and, and as well working with the agency team to say, look, if we want to scale rapidly, we're going to need to put these pieces in place. And you know, by the way, these are chunky big pieces of build that are going to take up quite a few weeks, but here's what you're going to get out the other side. Um, and credit to them, they they were open-minded and they listened. Like one thing I can never kind of criticize them for was like, you know, this isn't their domain. And they were always, they always were honest about that, I guess is the thing I could say. Like they, they were always like, look, we're new to this. You tell us what we need. The big adjustment I think for Joe and Nikki is that they, they built a business on social media. So they're used to lightning speed, right? Like we've got an idea. <laughs> we've got an idea. Film it literally on your phone, post it. 4 million people reply, great, that worked really well. What's the next thing we can do? Then they come to the software world and I'm telling them it's going to take four months. And they're just looking at me like that. But credit to them, they were, they gave us a lot of leeway to go and get that stuff done. But that was hard because I knew that like I wasn't going to be able to kind of demonstrate quick wins. I was like, actually, I'm going to go do this analytics thing for 10 weeks and customers aren't actually going to see anything. So that was tough. But that's a typical tension that you have with non-tech founders especially, and I guess maybe even trickier with people with incredible, let's call it industry cachet or credibility. And obviously, as you say, the additional, I guess, trickiness of the fact that they're so used to just being able to bash stuff out. And the fact that basically Joe Wicks fundamentally is the product in many ways. Like he, It's all him. It's all based around him. But it's a kind of a cliche that you get, and I'm sure that some people here have had it as well, that these people kind of just don't accept any of the excuses or any of the reasons that you give and they'll always complain about the slowdowns and they just want everything to be fast like it was in the old days. Now, it sounds like you kind of got over that a bit with the team, but did you ever have any particular problems where that kind of you know operational slowness or the fact that it takes time to develop things actually kind of came to a head or did you always manage to kind of smooth it over? And if so, how? Because I think everyone needs to know. I guess I have to consider myself really lucky. If I'm honest, I'm, I imagine... I can't say this for sure, but I could confidently say Nikki probably dealt with a lot of that from Joe, <laughs> but I never had to necessarily. So oh, you had air cover. Th- thank you to him, you know, and their brothers. So I guess they've got that relationship. <laughs> but yeah, like of course there were definitely moments of like, like with any product role like this, challenges where CEOs always want things faster. They always want it shipped yesterday. You know, I've had it harder at other places where I've had a CEO turn around to me and be like, "It takes eight weeks to build an app. Can't you just get it done?" And you're just sort of looking at them and you just, you know, you want to punch them in the face a little bit. Like, <laughs> well, if you use Joe Wicks' app, you can build the muscles to get a good swing on them as well. So that's another, that's another good thing, right? But it's, um, there were no, I would say it never really came to a head. I think it was more just a, again, a conversation around, look, this is why it's going to take this. By the way, we don't have to do this. We can work on these other things, but here's where we're going to miss out. Here's, here are the, you know, the capabilities we're going to miss. 
This is the evidence. So everything obviously we always do is evidence, but from our users, I mean, one massive luxury of working at a place like that is you've got such an engaged community. You've literally got hundreds of thousands of people on Facebook groups, Instagram DMs, Twitter, responding to your every move. So if you want to get feedback to get evidence to show why we should be doing something, that wasn't difficult at all. But to look at it another way, and we kind of touched it already, like given that Joe Wicks kind of looms large over everything at the body coach, because he again embodies the essence of it all right must be quite hard because i'm assuming that sometimes he's just going to really push for something because this is his brand this is his thing and of course all ceos are a bit like that but like not all ceos are actually the company effectively so like how do you push back on a demand that maybe doesn't have evidence maybe doesn't have much backing but it's just like a strong opinion of basically the the concept of the company that's bringing it to you when you don't have the evidence yeah like you you, basically you want to say no the person with the muscles is saying yes literally yeah exactly (laughs) and you need to find a way to persuade them but again they're so highly respected they've got such strong opinions about how this should all be that you somehow need to push back on that and win that for want of a better word argument well, well, I guess to flip it around, were there any times that you just had to roll over and say, okay, Joe? I mean, nothing, there's no example that comes to mind, but yeah, I guess it's the short answer. There were, there were always, you're always going to get feature requests from your CEO. And to be honest, if you're smart, you are going to do some of them. Like, I think <laughs> you need to learn to pick your battles. I mean, you kind of, you kind of took my answer away when I was thinking about like, what would I, what, how would I go about it? My first call is always evidence. Like, what can we get from a quant point of view? What can we get from our, from our users? And if you haven't got that, then you deserve to get rolled over, frankly. Like, <laughs> that's your job. So you should go and find that stuff. Assuming like you've, you've done that and that hasn't worked, then I think you've got to be comfortable articulating the trade-offs. So, okay, great. We're going to do this. Cool. What would you like to take out? Or we're going to pause that work for four weeks. Is that cool? And just spell it out and be not confrontational in your style, but just be like, this is what, well, we were working on these things, or we did say that was our priority for this quarter. So are we all comfortable that we're going to hit pause on that? Um, you know, that's where your roadmap can really become your friend, like your tool you can, you know, frankly kind of throw back in people's faces and be like, I thought we were doing this. So that's where I would go with it. You reminded me of another time though, like where I worked for a B2B uh, SaaS platform and this was slightly different. Like we were, I'm not sure if this is entirely relevant, but I'll go with it. But we, we let's go for it. I mean, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> we were a product team, product managers, myself. Were you was a there. proper product team? Well. I'll come to that. Um, okay. And we were, you know, trying to do continuous discovery and lots of good user desk research, user research, all this stuff, analytics. But every time a big deal came across the table, we would just run and go after it. And at the start, I was quite new to this. So I was, I was like, oh, okay, like we've got, you know, the CEO said we've got to build this. We can fit it in here. And, and our product stuff over here, we'll, you know, we'll sort of get that in over there on that side. And you know what it's like, like nothing really gets done that properly. Anyway, fast forward over a period of time and it just became clear to me that like, if we are going to act like an agency, then where we're essentially building bespoke requests for these big B2B enterprise clients, then let's just call it that. And I yeah. wish I'd had that conversation sooner. Whereas like, if that's what you want to do, that's cool. But let's not lie to the team and say we're an autonomous product team. And also, if we're going to hire people, let's not hire... You know, let's not give them the pitch about being an empowered product manager to only find out that they're essentially a, you know, a project manager having to deliver a load of stuff to a schedule, which is often how it turned out. 
And eventually we had that conversation and I just wish I'd, I'd had that sooner because it would have just cleared the air, I think, a lot, made everyone clearer. But how did that conversation go then? Like, was it literally they just said, well, yeah, well. fair enough. And they just fired all the product managers and just got the project managers in instead? Or did they kind of go, shut up? Like, how did it go? I mean, actually, I, I, I said it didn't go well, but actually, when I think about it, we ended up hiring a technical, technical delivery manager. I can't remember what the title was. And we sort of split the bespoke delivery side of things into one squad. And then we had the core product squad working on the other stuff. And obviously, anything that was on the bespoke side of things, ultimately, we were trying obviously not to make it bespoke. We were looking at how we could make it configurable, how we could make it scalable, and how we could productize it into the rest of the core product. But that's where we ended up. But we should have got there a lot sooner. And you know, now with the benefit of hindsight, I can spot those signs a lot earlier. In fact, I'll ask, I'll ask it in an interview now. I'll be like, you know, you know, the classic question I like to ask is, tell me about something you shipped, but more importantly, why did you ship it? And be honest, like, where did it come from? And you can normally tell, like, did you genuinely find this from going through your opportunities, going through your problems, prioritizing them, or did you just get told to do it? But how do you think that conversation, if you'd have asked that, for example, when you're interviewing for the body coach, do you think that they would have answered that question in a way that would have made you want to take the job? Yeah, I think so. It goes back to like, they were always incredibly trusting in, you know, they haven't got to where they've got to by kind of being heads down and saying like, we're going to do it our way. They are quite the opposite. They are very authentic and they are the first to say, I haven't got a bloody clue. I mean, you've heard Joseph, I haven't got a bloody <laughs> clue about this. Like, I'm looking to you to tell me the answers. And, you know, and Nikki and Joe are very similar in that regard. They'll both be the first to turn around and say, you know, that's why you're here to help. Tell us what you would do. But with that caveat, they are going to come in now again and say, we want to do this. And, and the one bit where we did really harness them like massively was they know the customer inside out. Yeah. I don't know if you know, like Joe does like a hundred, probably 150 voice DMs every night to people in his wow. Instagram. I don't uh, even box. do that to my friends. <laughs> no, I don't reply to my mates. So like when I say they are like in tune with their customer, they are really, really in tune with their customer. So he's what? Responding to people that have reached out to him? Yeah. Wow. That is an interesting use of time. Yeah, oh, no, it's not. It's not good for him. I mean, think you know he, he's admitted that, but they, you know, they are really driven by that purpose to help people. So, from a product point of view, that's a tricky balance. It's like, okay, guys, <laughs> we kind of want your arm's length for some of this stuff, but yeah. also we do want that expertise and that insight. No, absolutely. I think also one thing that I always like to try and drive home with teams is that sometimes it doesn't matter where the feedback comes from. It's much better to have some feedback from somewhere than no feedback from anywhere. Uh, to, to go back to your point earlier as well another thing that i think is really important is just to the kind of the scenario that you played out earlier where like if you don't have any evidence you kind of deserve to be over i mean i i strongly believe that because i've seen so many times in my career either personally or when working with other people or some of the coaching stuff that i've done where you just people just like they're like well i don't want to do this thing that the ceo just said you're like well why and like, because the ceo said and like, well, what would you do instead i don't know so it's like if you don't have any ideas, then again, as you yep. say, there, there should be no surprise that you get overridden because CEO wants to do something. But it sounds like you had a good relationship with your, not CEO, but well, CEO too, but like with Joe and, and the team, everything was going pretty well, but you left anyway. So you've obviously you left Birmingham, you left the body coach, you, you always leave good things as it turns <laughs> out. And I know that you've now moved into, or you're moving into fractional work, which is the world that I'm in at the moment as well. Yep. So you've kind of jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. I guess the question is, and I know that this is something that is relevant to a lot of people, you know, lots of people are 
considering this these days, like, what was it that made you want to take that leap after you've achieved what you have at the body coach? Following in your footsteps, Jason. You, oh, okay. Well, I, I don't have as big muscles week. as Joe Wicks. So. <laughs> there's, a, there's a number of reasons. I guess on a personal level, like I became a dad last year. And Congratulations. Round of applause. You. Thank you. And it's a cliche, I guess, but that forces you to kind of look at your situation, think about how you're spending your time. And that's certainly been the case for me. And my wife and I have always wanted kind of freedom of time, freedom of location. And this felt like the a right step in that direction. So that was one big, big part of it. I think the other thing is confidence. Like I'd say five years ago, I wouldn't have had the confidence to this kind of thing. I, you know, I mean, even now I still like have massive kind of imposter syndrome around it. But it, I certainly reached a point where I was like, okay, I think I can, I can do something now. I can add value. And this ties into, I guess, the third reason, which I just think it's kind of mad how at the head of VP, CPO, whatever, you sort of jump in with founders. You're like head first into these demanding senior roles. They don't really know you. You don't really know them. And you're like expected to go like hell for leather and like, you know, build this business. And it just, I kind of woke up one day and I was like, this just kind of strikes me as a bit nuts. Like I would much rather sort of speed date and <laughs> demonstrate that I can actually like, can I actually say what I can do? Put my money where my mouth is or whatever the phrase is. And, you know, so do they actually say I can have value? Do I like them? And then let's have a conversation about going full time if it's right, or maybe the, maybe the answer is actually you need to hire a different kind of product person. So it was all of those reasons sort of came together, um, and I reached out to you. You did. For some I tried to advice. dissuade you because I don't I don't <laughs> want competition. <laughs> I was like, Jason, shall I do it? And you were like, No. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's where I've come to so far. And how's the fractional journey gone? I mean, obviously you've <laughs> described your motivations for doing it, but yeah. It's not as easy as I think some people maybe assume. So like, how has that been for you so far? In a word, hard. <laughs> <laughs> what's the hardest thing for you? <sighs> I, what's the hardest thing? Oh God, there's a few. Like I think, I think selling yourself is a completely new thing. You know, you obviously, I know you go through interview processes and stuff like that for full-time roles, but this is different. Like I only wrote my first sort of pitch email probably like six weeks ago. And it just feels really odd to kind of be writing that. Here's what I can offer. And, you know, and by the way, here's my price. Like, and it's, <laughs> it, I don't know, that, that still is something I don't feel that comfortable with. I'm sure I get over it eventually. So that's been hard. I think there's a lot of people trying to do it. And I think, you know. Oh, yeah. So you are, you have to find ways to stand out. And I think I've quickly realized as well, like the more hyper-specific you can be about the types of businesses you can add value to, which for me is actually, I think, quite difficult because I've got quite a variety. So I'm now thinking, right, I just need to home in on like B2C consumer subscription apps or B2B2C white label products because I've kind of had experience in both of those. So that's been, those have been the two hard bits about it. So yeah, I've had four out of four rejections so far, I think. But I think I might have got my first one. We'll see. Hey, well, there you go. Hopefully it will be good and you'll be a cracking success. But uh, yeah, no, it, it is hard. But I also know lots of people out there that are looking for jobs and, you know, hopefully uh, certain recruitment firms can, can help with some of that as well. But some people are looking for jobs out there and, and getting hundreds, apparently, of rejections. Like, it's a really tough market out there at the moment. I think a lot of people are looking at going into fractional work just because they see it as a, an alternative, which it obviously is. But yeah, I completely agree. It's not 100% easy, but... You know, one of the things I miss about my consulting days, I guess, is that variety of seeing inside yep. lots of different businesses, getting to meet lots of people. Um, I really enjoy that building new relationships. 
And that also drew me back into it. I was like, you know, there used to be a phrase in consulting or some, something like a year of consulting is like three years in industry or something like that. There is some truth in it. Like you, you have to be a bit of a chameleon. You kind of arrive at a business, quickly understand how it works, quickly, hopefully deliver some value. And then before you know it, you've delivered the thing and you've moved on. And you do have to upskill yourself really fast. And I thought this would be a good time to do that as well. I know we're going to have to wrap up soon so that we can ask some questions, but I'm going to, I always like to get sort of actionable by the end. So I want you to give people here and someone maybe listening online, if there's any, I didn't check, but hopefully there are, or people listen to this afterwards, which there will be some, thankfully. But I want you to give a piece of advice. Like if someone here or someone listening is, maybe going into a really opinionated, founder-led, creator-led organization, you know, their own personal Joe Wicks, what's the first thing they should do to really help to bond with that person and make themselves a partner for that person rather than just being someone who goes in to execute their plans? Ooh. If it's a creator-led business, like, I mean, the person is the business. Yeah, that type of business. It sounds obvious, but get to know them, like get inside their head. My interview process at the body coach was two or three after the normal rounds, I think three, three hour walks with the founders. Um, you didn't get out of breath, did you? Cause that probably would have, <laughs> I was battered by the end of it. But, <laughs> but the point of that, I guess to tell that story was like, it was really about understanding them as a person. It's a very different dynamic in the early stages to say your, your traditional VC backed business. This person has, you know, literally put their blood, sweat and tears into it. It's probably their money at that point that they've plowed back into it. It's a very different mindset. You know, they might view it as like their business, a family business. So you have to, I think you have to be really respectful of that and understand that even more than your traditional CEO, certainly more than your seasoned CEO, they're going to be very, they're not going to be used to letting go of the reins. So you've got to kind of really tread carefully, I think, there. And then go back to like the usual process, I would say, of like demonstrate impact quickly if you can. I know that's not always easy. And use evidence as much as you can to show what you're doing. Oh, excellent. And hopefully inspirational advice. But before the Q&A, in case people are too shy to, to speak to you, or ask you any questions, or in case we miss anything on the LinkedIn Live, where can people catch up with you after this? Where can they connect with you if they want to have a tete-a-tete? You know, maybe get, get you to go for a walk with them or just in general catch up with you after this and talk about some of the stuff they've heard. You can find me on LinkedIn. I try my best to reply to everyone on LinkedIn. You never reply to me. I've been, <laughs> I've been dabbling in Twitter of late. Which I I'm, think it's called X these days. X, sorry, yeah. This X, is another sorry, example not. of a allegedly creator-led <laughs> business where you can't push back on any feature requests. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard. Yeah, I feel sorry for their VP of product, whoever that is. Um, yeah, I don't think they have one anymore. They, they fired them all, but you know, it's... <laughs> I think everyone's everyone's Elon now, except for Linda Yaccarino, the CEO. Like she's the only person that's not Elon. Yep. Everyone else is just Elon. You can find me on there. That's it, really. Those places. Excellent. Well, let's give it up for Sagar and his fantastic chat. And if anyone does have any questions for Sagar or me, but mainly Sagar, then you can obviously ask them at the networking afterwards. So I do believe Sagar will be fleeing back to London. Shortly after this, because uh, well, it's not quite time. Well, you still got you still got time on the meter. You still got time on the meter. But as we've as we've already heard about Sega, he's basically he flees Birmingham every chance he gets. He's fleeing Birmingham tonight just to prove a point. But if anyone has any questions that they would like to ask on tape, 
and now's the time uh, and I'll check the LinkedIn live as well. Thank you very much. I'd love it if you could expand a bit more when you were at the body coach, your approach to user research, especially when you had a founder that was so in tune with the, with the users already. So your role as the product manager, would you, did you have other user researchers in the team? Uh, did you take it upon yourself to also become the voice of the user? Yeah, basically all that process around the research plans. How, how, and also, could you trust the, um, the users that you had there? Like, could you just go on Instagram and be like, do you guys want this and trust that? That last bit is, that's a very interesting question. I, I guess the, to the first part of your question, yeah, it was a classic discovery process in to complement, I guess, all the other feedback we had and feedback we had from our, from our founders. So yes, we undertook user research. We spoke to customers directly, undertook uh, user interviews, desk research, competitor research, all of the traditional inputs that you'd go after. We had the huge luxury then of having Facebook groups, Instagram comments, all of these places on social media. And I guess the reason I said that was interesting was I think that made us potentially a little, we got a little bit too reliant upon that. And my worry with that was always it was an echo chamber of, say, power users. And I guess one of the things you've got to be really careful of with a creator-led business is you get lots and lots of super fans. You can imagine someone of Joe's reach, like there are users who, no matter what he says, they love it, all right? Even if he gets it wrong, they'll, they'll be loving it. And you can see them in the data. Like we can see them as a cohort in our retention curve and they retain 10% higher than the months that came after because they were the launch users. They were the users who love everything that we did. And my worry, and I don't, I'm, I'm not sure if we ever got an answer to this. Grace might have got to an answer on this now, actually. But when we used to drop a survey into the Facebook group, it was amazing to get all that engagement. But I always worried, like, who are the people who are not talking in there? Who are the people who never signed up in there? And how do we actually go and find and speak to those users? We were talking about at the time just just doing more outreach through different channels, so doing some broader market research to people who didn't follow us on social media, and essentially going after different cohorts of users. So people who follow us on social, people who don't follow us on social, people who sign up to the newsletter who don't have the app, using a bunch of screening questions to try and get down into more granularity. And we had some success with it, but yeah, we, we were perhaps a little bit over-reliant upon those groups at times. Sagar, in the setup... We, you alluded to um, your pricing model with the app. We were talking about freemium, which this event is. And yeah, any learnings you can share about how you price the app and subscription and anything at all there? Oh, this one hurts my head a little bit. Like it's, there's so many like, po- okay, this is, this is a pet peeve one actually, because there's too many blog posts out there about this stuff for people like claiming to have cracked it. Every product's different. It massively depends upon your acquisition strategy and, and how you acquire users and how you're perceived as a brand to then what your onboarding and your price points, your paywall strategy looks like. I'll try and give you a real example. So when the Body Coach app launched, it didn't have a uh, free trial, which I don't know about you, but when I arrived, I was like, oh, that's a bit odd. Like we don't have a free trial. Consumer apps these days, you expect to be able to kind of poke around a bit before you go and use it, right? And they got away with it. They had massive launch numbers. Why was that? Well, because Joe was telling everyone about his app and there was a huge amount of trust with him and his followers were downloading the apps and those super fans I alluded to earlier were downloading the app as well. So they didn't need a free trial because they love the brand. They love what the brand stands for. They trust the brand. They bought the product. They paid up front with the cash and off they went. A few months in though, the noise around having a free trial began to grow. So they implemented a free trial, which was the right thing to do. 
but when I arrived, I was I was I remember being quite judgmental, like, why'd you launch without a free version? And then I kind of realized, oh, actually, you can get away with it. And from a revenue point of view, it was probably quite smart, to be honest, because you banked all that revenue straight up front. So that's just one example. I think if you are a if you are a business that's built on paid marketing, like targeting cold leads out there, then you probably definitely can't get away with that. You need to be able to demonstrate the value of the product up front. Um, you need probably need a, a freemium tier or, or some kind of free trial or maybe a hybrid experience where you allow people in. Freemium, again, is something like we, we flirted with and spoke about internally, but I think you know, I'm not an expert on freemium models because I haven't done it myself, but my understanding of doing freemium is you have to have huge volumes coming in at the top of the funnel. That's why you know, people go, oh, Spotify do it. Yeah, but Spotify have millions of users. Strava do it as well. Even Strava are struggling to convert, from what I hear on the grapevine, to premium users as well, which is why a paywall pops up every five seconds in their app these days. So yeah, I think those were some real learnings around, around freemium versus free versus trial versus paid. I think the other thing I've learned is don't be afraid to put your, to charge more than you think. The body coach, you know, one of the values of that business and the mission is fitness for everyone. And, you know, Joe and Nikki were always adamant that the price point had to be accessible to many people. And that influences our pricing strategy. We ran discounts a lot of the time. In fact, the team still do. I see it now. And we're, we're incredibly generous with things like a loyalty offer where after one year on the app, you know, normally your price goes up because your introductory offer is finished or well, the body coach goes down which is unheard of and actually was really difficult to build because none of the tech supports that out of the box. Um, App Store doesn't support it. Play Store doesn't support it. So I'm beginning to ramble here, but those things were, I think, uh, were key, I think, to or key learnings. Sega, a uh, question about proper product management, if I may. God, I'm not going uh, to start. Popularized by Marty Kagan, but I guess you, you mentioned it. I'm, I'm curious. I'm relatively new to the world of product management. I suppose I am very familiar with what you describe as maybe traditional product management, which is execution, backlog management, that kind of stuff. But where's this proper, proper product management come from? Where's it sprung up from? Is it a new thing? Is it fad? Is it fringe? Is it becoming mainstream? Is it a concern for everyone or just a niche group of people? Should we both have a go at this one? That's, I mean, I, ah, oh, proper was the wrong use of word now, wasn't it? I see it as like um, it's like a circle, isn't it? And I think when when I was doing that role, the like the circle was incomplete. Maybe is the way I'd describe it. And there were key elements of the job that we weren't doing. But the other bit was was very important and definitely part of product management. Do I think the kind of conversation around this is growing, particularly in London and Europe over the last fifteen odd years? Yeah, definitely. I think you know when I was doing that kind of work ten odd years ago, more now. I think it was really hard to find information on on proper product management and what you should be doing from a customer discovery point of view, from understanding the why and the problem you're trying to solve. I think there's way more content on that now. The other bit we haven't spoken about in this is the stage of company you're at has a huge effect on this. So you could argue that in an agency world, that is product management. Maybe that is the answer, but because the client has given you the why or, or just told you to go and do something. But I know certainly if you look at early stage to late stage, in an early stage business, you are doing all of that circle. You're, you're doing everything on the kind of far left around discovery, taking it through build, and then coming out the other side and measuring your results. But in a larger organization, you're probably just one piece of the puzzle and you've got a load of people around you helping you with all that stuff. So it really does depend on the scale of the organization as well, as well as whether you are, I guess, your agency or in-house. I think also, like, if you talk about like, what is proper product management, I mean, 
to your point. I mean, absolutely, it sprung up not just from people like Marty Kagan, but he's obviously been a massive proponent of it. He's written two books on it. He's got another one coming out. He blogs on it. He's been in and around this game for years. Now, Marty himself will say, because I asked him, what do you do if if you join a company that doesn't want to do any of this stuff? And his position is, well, they've got to find religion. They've got to believe that this is the right thing to do. Now, I'm very curious to see his new book because it's all about transformation. It's about transformation of legacy thinking companies, as as many product people would see it, to a more product-oriented model. Now, what is a product-oriented model? Well, this has all come from, obviously, the big tech firms who have tried to turn on its head this whole tailorist, top-down management, micromanage outputs over outcomes type approach and actually say, well, look, how can we actually make sure that the products that we're building suit the majority of the, you know, a, a large number of people, that we build a scalable business, that we build products that delight people, that we don't just build what some, you know, one person, not Joe Wicks as it turns out, but like in, there could be many Joe Wicks type companies out there that have a really opinionated founder that doesn't listen to anyone. Now, as Sega said, that's not Joe Wicks, so we have to give him credit for that, but there'll be plenty of other failed Joe Wicks out there that maybe made really capricious decisions that just didn't work. And they made products that were awful and their companies collapsed because they didn't listen to their customers, because they didn't build a scalable business, because they just didn't do it quote unquote correctly. Now, is there really a correctly? No, there's not really. Every company, to your point and to your point, every company has its own way of doing things. I'm often a proponent of saying, well, I'm always a proponent of it, but I often say, because I'm quite boring, that if you sit there and expect all these books to tell you how to make products, that's wonderful, but it's not going to be like that. It doesn't matter how all of these companies make products. It matters how you make products. And if you can make the best decisions that you can to make sure your product is successful, it doesn't 100% matter if it's not quote-unquote proper. But I do think that these proper product management principles that you'll see in all of these books, there's something there. They're not, like, they're not made up. Like Successful companies have tried to do these things. Another thing that I also worry about is whether there's some survivorship bias here. Like, I'm sure there were lots and lots of companies that did all of these cool proper product things that also failed. But in the same sense, there's also lots of people out there, lots of companies out there that maybe didn't do them that were quite successful, depending on however they measured success. So I am still kind of trying to work out in my head, like, is there survivorship bias? Is it simply the fact that there's all these VC-backed firms in Silicon Valley where all the, all the free money was until relatively recently? that can kind of do this test and learn approach? Is it a B2C thing versus a B2B thing? Are there other factors down to company stage and company size? Who knows? I mean, I think, you know, you could probably do a PhD on this stuff. But I still genuinely believe that however not proper your product company is, there's still a chance to try some of those things out, see if they help, to your point earlier, see if they help make you or they help your product be a little bit better, if they help your company be a little bit more successful. Yeah, you can try. You can see if they work. If they don't work in your context or if other things get in the way, well, try something else. I think that in itself is almost like bringing product thinking to the art of making products in the first place. I guess one distinction I want to make is the bit that was missing for me was fundamental, which is the why we do something. What you just said there, I would massively echo. In fact, I'm, I'm really against businesses being like, we should be doing product like this. You know, like that medium.com blog says, we should do it like this. There's such a load of bollocks. You need to do what's what's right for your business. But the bit around consulting I was making was that a core principle of product is understanding why you're doing something and and what is the like problem we're trying to solve. And that for me was the bit that was missing around it. 
Any more questions from the room? I don't think there's any online. One question about um, agencies, actually, because you, you'd spoken about your time at Deloitte, and, and to me, it sounded like there, obviously, the frustration you just articulated with not having the why, right? Customers would come in, you'd have a what, maybe, and you'd execute on that what through a timeline, and, and you'd do the best you could to prioritize things and deliver as much value as possible in that time, but, but you wouldn't have the why, perhaps, or at least as clearly articulated why as you'd like. And I'm curious, in your mind, in your opinion, and this applies to both of you, Jason, you, you as well, I'm sure you've been around the block as well. Like, is that the, the plight of the consultancy and the agency? Like, is that where you live? Is that what the market is? Like, there are people with money and confidence, and you just need to build what they want. Or is the market growing for folks with money and openness? Like Joe Wick's story, right? Hired an agency to come in and take them from zero to one to create something new, a new digital augmentation to go with the audience. And it sounds like they did it right, right? He articulated the why. He was the embodiment of the voice of the customer. And he brought that to the agency so they could deliver not just what he wanted, but what he wanted the outcomes to be for his business and for his community. So... Do you think that's more common these days, I guess is what I'm trying to say? Or is the consultancy agency world kind of stuck in that people with confidence and money? Well, you've just got to do what you can for them. And, and that's the way it is. Go through the rounds, get your experience three years in one. I think there's, I think there's room for both is where I'm beginning to land on this. So, so in answer to the second part, like, do I think the, the latter is becoming more common? Yes. I think there are more and more product-led organizations, agencies rather, sorry, being created who specialize in going from zero to one, taking a creative founder and taking them through a discovery process and into build and really understanding the why behind something and taking it forward. But there is, there is still a room for a consultancy that just does straight delivery where you've got, perhaps you've got a really established brand who know exactly how their business runs. They are the experts. You know, you take a John Lewis, a Dyson, an Audi, all these clients we work with, they're really bloody successful. They know what works. And they were like, look, you're here to deliver what we need to do. And I think that's, that's also fair. It just, for me, it wasn't true product management. Like I was missing that piece. And I think maybe it goes back to your internal motivations as well. I've always felt a high degree of ownership and I see myself building my own thing one day. So I always struggled with being kind of two steps removed from something. And that's ultimately, I think, why I left that world. If you love working with clients and you're happy just doing execution, then that's definitely the right place for you. Go for it. Like, no judgment. I think that's amazing. But I think for me, it didn't work. I think it's also fair to say that there are plenty of non-agency people out there that are stuck in exactly the same position that you've just described. There are plenty of founders out there that are building companies that maybe themselves don't really have a clear why as such other than maybe just money. And... There's nothing wrong with that to a degree, right? Like, again, if you just want to go and build some stuff for someone, if you enjoy the craft of making software, knock yourself out. I'm not going to judge anyone for that. It's fun to do that. And it really just depends on the dynamics. We talked about business dynamics before. Like, some businesses operate in certain ways. Some businesses are never going to change. And you see this, obviously, from a consulting perspective, like, or even a coaching perspective, like, or just in general, I speak to a lot of product managers or a lot of product people on a weekly basis. and they all have different stories to tell, but there are some commonalities half the time. Like, well, yeah, that, that sounds like that type of company or that, so yeah, that sounds like that type of company. 
And I think the point earlier about kind of selecting for the, the actual type of company that you want to work for. And I actually think also for those companies, for them to select the type of product manager that wants to work for them rather than trying to just smoosh them together. Again, maybe this is something we can talk about over beer to try and fix hiring for product managers because 100%. it's, it's, it's a car crash out there for so many roles where you just go into the wrong place or you get the wrong person and you end up spending six months wasting your time from both sides with a job that was never going to work out. So there's got to be a better way to find out if it's going to work out. But for the right role for the, or for the right candidate or for the right person going in, it's probably a dream role. They're doing something that they care about in an industry that they're passionate about and they get to go and build cool stuff. For example, let's imagine that Joe Wicks was the, the other type of founder, like the, the closed-minded, super opinionated, wanted it, you know, his way or the highway type thing. That doesn't rhyme if you do it that way around. But basically, imagine that he would like that. But you were super passionate about him. You loved his brand. You loved his story. And you just loved fitness. And you just wanted to be part of that. Great, go and do it. Or if you want to go and put a stake in the ground and say, like, I am you know, this visionary, this, that, or the other, or I want to be involved in more of the strategic stuff. I want to help create and craft this company. In that situation, go, go and work somewhere else. Be better for everyone, in my opinion. Definitely agree. I think the... How many times do you hear like about early stage founders who hire ahead of product as their first hire and then quickly realize that actually they just want someone to go out there and execute on their behalf. Like I think the, the more we can fix that, I think the better. One thing I would say as well is like if you're trying to get into product management or your or software delivery, like definitely take those roles, the agency roles as well. Like don't take from this conversation like I shouldn't be doing that. No, like my years there were incredible and I loved it and I learned loads and I worked with really closely with engineers and solution architects and UX and visual designers, all these, all the cross-functional element was still there, 100%. And that's all stuck with me. I do recommend actually when, again, when people are trying to get into product, like there's no shame in being a backlog manager for a bit. You learn a lot about crafting or the, the kind of the day-to-day crafting of a product. It's not going to get you all the way there if you want to be that kind of quote-unquote proper product manager one day. But you learn a lot of, for want of a better word, hard skills when you go out there and you put yourself into those situations and you start to get used to the rhythms and the, the noises and the smells of creating. Like, it's like working at a market or something or in a, in a wholesaler's. You know, it's just, you just get used to how it all feels. And that's not for nothing, I will say. Shall we wrap? Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming, everyone. I uh, hope to see some of you around and about afterwards. But if you're not bored of our voices, and uh, I'm sure we can persuade uh, Sagar to stay for a little bit longer as well. Cheers, everyone. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.